Philippians. And as they're making their way that way, let me say, uh, um, so grateful for so many people in this body, and um, I want to say I'm grateful for Jared and his multi ability to do his ability to do multiple things well. And I know last week he preached, and if you were here, I know that you know that he preached on a very controversial subject. And he began a series when every time he's preaching, going to be doing cross in the culture and how that the cross meets every single issue in our culture with, just like Jesus did, with grace and truth, with grace and truth. And I know last week as Jared looked at what the Bible had to say about homosexuality, that he looked at it just like Jesus would have with grace and truth and hope in the cross. Jared, thank you so much for being faithful to God's word and to him and bringing truth and grace and hope to our people that they might spread that grace and truth and hope to others. And if you miss that, you can get it online and listen to that as well. And thankful for uh, the truth that we have to rely on in his word. And uh, um, I know a few of you want to know where I was last week. Um, I, I, it was 20th anniversary for Fellows Christian Athletes in Springfield, Illinois. I was the one who kind of started. I was the first staff person there for the first eight years. And God's done amazing things there in, in, in central Illinois. And thankful for that. And thankful for what God not only did there, but has done there and multiplied the ministry amazingly. And uh, so they asked me to come back in celebration of that 20 years. And, um, and then there was a ba- banquet that next night in Peoria, which used to also be part of my... Um, area. I had, you know, there's like five staff people for when I was there by myself when we started, and God's just done some amazing things. And the guest speaker both nights was Tim Tebow. So I was hanging out with Tim Tebow uh, for a couple of days, and, and I'll just say this, no matter what you think about him as a uh, football player, he is the real deal. He loves the Lord. And I got some just one-on-one time with him to talk about things, and I was more impressed than I ever had been, even with all the things he said in the paper and stuff like that. So no matter what you think about him as a football player, one thing I know about this, Tim Tebow loves Jesus, and that's all that counts. Who cares if he ever plays another down? I know he does because he wants to play, but who really ultimately cares? What does it really matter? He will glorify the Lord no matter what he does. So what a great opportunity to do that, to celebrate with lots of friends of what God has done with FCA and the, the presentation of the gospel through the platform of, um, of, of sports. So thanks for allowing me to do that. It's a lot of fun. It made, the, my, uh, made for a busy few weeks here for me. But hey, we're here. And we're going to look at, uh, pick back up in our study of to, in this letter to the Philippians. Uh, and the, 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 the title we've given to the series here is Finding Joy in Christ Alone. And interestingly enough, the title of the message this morning is just simply Christ Alone. Christ Alone. And we're going to find that in, first, uh, in first, the first chapter, verse 18b. All right, through 26. Now let me pick back up there, and I'm going to read this passage for us. We ended last time together um, at the end of, uh, the, I guess you could call 18a, and it says, In this I will rejoice, and this is one of those times when the numbers, it helps us find place, but really probably shouldn't be there. It probably should be up uh, at the beginning of this, yes, and I will rejoice. It was the end of chapter, uh, uh, verse 18. So let's begin reading there at the end of verse 18 down through verse 26. And yes, I will rejoice, for I know... That this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will, not put, I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, 
to die is gain. But if I'm to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know what you choose, but I'm hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet, to remain on the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Let's pray. Lord, uh, here we are again gathering together as believers, those who love you, who love your word, and to worship you together, Lord, to, through song and prayer, and now through the worship of you through your word. So, Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts and minds to your word. Teach us what only you can. Uh, change us, uh, Lord, in the areas that we need to be changed. Encourage us where we need to be encouraged. Lord, challenge us where we need to be challenged. Lord, that ultimately Christ might be exalted, whether by life or by death. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A few questions here for you. Do you have joy? Do you have joy now? Did you have joy yesterday? Will you have joy tomorrow? If you answer no to any of these things, what is keeping you from having joy? Whatever it is, it most likely has to do with circumstances. I know that's true for me. The circumstances often will dictate whether I have joy or not. Uh, yet God, through Paul, and though we don't have joy sometimes, God, through Paul and other writers such as James, teaches that joy is a choice. And it should not be dictated by our circumstances. Circumstances are not the boss when it comes to joy. God is the boss when it comes to joy. Joy is a couple definitions here to help you think about what is joy. Joy is a jubilant emotion of great pleasure based on the truth of God's goodness. It's a jubilant emotion of great pleasure based on the goodness of God. Joy comes from being able to look beyond temporal circumstances and to the person of Christ in all that he is and all that he promises. That's joy. And if that's joy, then circumstances can never take our joy away. We choose whether to have joy or not. It's a choice. Well, Paul had joy. He was able to rejoice in spite of his circumstances. Remember, he's in, he's in prison here when he writes this letter. And he's still all through this. Some people call it the epistle of joy because the word rejoice and joy is all over it. So he chooses joy. Why? Because he found his greatest pleasure in Christ alone. Do you? Do you find your greatest pleasure in Christ alone? Do you find your greatest pleasure in Christ alone because Christ is your greatest treasure? Because if he is your greatest treasure, he will be your greatest pleasure. If we're all honest, we must say to this question, do we find our joy in Christ alone? Two, it's a two-letter word. No. We don't always find our greatest treasure and our greatest pleasure in Christ alone. Let's be honest. It's obvious sometimes by our actions, by our attitudes. At least, I know one person here that's true for. That'd be me. I don't always find my greatest pleasure in Christ alone. I don't always choose joy based upon that truth. 
I choose sometimes not to be joyful because I allow my, dictate, my, my, my circumstances to dictate my attitude. See, God wants us to have joy. In fact, in James 1, we're commanded to have joy. If you, those of you who have been around here for a while, I preach through James. My fa- one of my favorite books in the Bible right now, Philippians is, since we're preaching through it. And this is my favorite passage right now because we're preaching through it this morning. But James says this, Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. That's not a suggestion. That's a command. It's an imperative to consider it joy. And, and, and just because of the, the nature of the, the context that Paul writing here to the church of Philippi, it's also really a command as well here that we are to choose joy. So do you want to find your joy and your greatest pleasure in Christ alone? Is that what you'd like to be your greatest desire? Is to find joy in Christ alone? Well, good news is that Paul, inspired by God, is going to teach us how we can do that this morning here in our passage that I just read. And before we look at this, these verses here in Philippians, this will be reminded of the context before we dive in here. Paul, again, as I said, he's in prison. He's in Rome, and he receives this gift of help from the church of Philippi through a guy named Epaphroditus, and we'll get to him a little bit later. So Paul then writes this letter in response to that gift, and he sends it back to the church of Philippi with Epaphroditus. That's what's going on here in this letter. He started this church we saw back in Acts 16, and we saw amazing things that happened there. And he's visited the church two more times since then so he's familiar with this church he loves the people of this church and you see that just poured out we've already seen it in this prayer for them in the first in, in, in the first letter and he does what he does he starts this whole letter out with a, a christ exalting prayer and then in verses 12 through 18a which we saw last time he speaks of his present joy that the gospel is being preached all over the world no matter the people's uh, motive or their attitudes He's just thankful that Christ is being preached. So he talks about his present joy. And this morning, in, in, in the rest of verse 18 through down through 26, he's going to talk about his future joy. That, that Christ alone is exalted. That's his future joy. That's his future hope. That Christ alone is exalted. So let's look now at these verses beginning there in, in the end of verse 18. Yes, and I will rejoice. Paul chooses an attitude of joy. So how can he do that? Remember, he's in prison. Yes, now he's in house arrest. Later, his last imprisonment, it'll be a little more dungeon-y. But he's still not free to come and go. He got a guy chained to him. We talked about that last time, how that poor guy chained to him. Got to hear the gospel all the time. Got to see it lived out. But he's still chained. He can't go wherever he wants, so he's still in prison. So look now at verse 21, and we begin to discover how in the world he can choose joy in the midst of this difficult circumstance. Verse 21. I'll come back to the other verses, don't worry. It says, for to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And this is, gain is, this is really a summary of verses 19 and 20. It's really a, a, a transition here in, in, in that passage, but it's the summary. He says, to live is Christ. Now, why would he say that? So if he continues to live, here he stays in his body, continues to do what he's been doing, this is why he can say, to live is Christ. He, keeps, he gets to keep preaching the gospel. And to Paul, that was life. The, the proclamation of the good news that Jesus came to save all those, all those who would repent and trust in him from their sin. The greatest thing. So he says, to me, to, to, to live is Christ. And then he says, to die is gain. If he dies, listen to this, he gets to go into the very presence of the unveiled glory of Christ. 
The, the glory of God, the glory of Christ is veiled now. We don't get to see it in its fullness. We couldn't handle it. I mean, Moses, we saw a glimpse of the hindquarters of God on the mountain. He came back glowing. He had to veil his face because he was going so much. He just got a glimpse of it. When we die, when Paul dies, he's saying, this is, this is what for me to live is, to die is gain. Is I will be in the unveiled presence of the glory of the living Christ. So you can probably sum it, up, sum it up this way. Live preaching Christ. Die presence of Christ. Either way. I win. For me, live is Christ and dies again. Being able, Paul, Paul is able to rejoice because whether he lives or he dies, it's all about Christ and Christ alone. See, here's the answer to the equation. All equations when it comes to things of God. Boom, 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 boom. Whatever it is, X plus Z plus Y plus this and this and this equals Christ alone. The next equation, just write it up on the board. Make it go across. Remember these problems in, 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 in high school math? They got go across the, front, the whole front of the board, and then they go to the, down the side walls. And they, I don't know if they do this anymore because you've got too many calculators, right? And it equals, and they'd have all this stuff, and I still don't know what it equals. Or any of that, I've never understood any of that. But I understand this. Whatever you put up on the board when it comes to God equals Christ alone. And we're going to see that all through this passage. Paul, he didn't have to be smart in math. Because it was about Christ alone. That's all he was focused on was Christ alone. And we will see that. It's either the preaching of Christ or the presence of Christ. Either one. Bring it on. This is good. Because it's about Christ. I, I love what Alistair Begg says. He's a pastor in Cleveland. He's actually originally from Ireland. But listen, I can't read it and say it like he does because I don't have that brogue. But listen, he says, The reason that a soul looks forward to being with Christ then is because for that soul now, Christ is increasing their, be, increasing their all in all. And if he is not increasing their all in all, the notion of being with Christ then is a hollow prospect. And you see, for, for Paul... Christ was increasingly his all in all. And it was just great to even be here and doing what he was doing. But hey, to go be with Christ, that sounds fun too. Because I love him now. So let me just say this. If you don't love him now, you won't love him then. If you don't want to be with him now, if he's not your all now, he will not be your all then. That's what Paul's getting at. Is he increasingly your all in all? Because guess what? When you go be with him, he will become even more increasing your all in all. And I think we'll never, ever discover all the greatnesses of Christ. I think that's why heaven will be so exciting. Every day I'll be going, whoa, did you see that? Amazing. I didn't know that about him. Oh, I love him more. And tomorrow, whoa, another one. It'll always be like that all the time. I'm pumped up. Just for that, it's exciting. And that's what Paul's saying. He says, man, if he's your all in all now, he will be your all in all then. So either way, win-win. Christ is everything. Well, we can go on that. We, we won't. All right? So if my joy is wrapped up with what's here, then I will not desire Christ. If my joy is wrapped up in my wife, in my children, in my position, in my possessions, in my power, then I will not be able to say, as Paul says here, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Because he's ultimate. And those things of this world are not. Well, this is where I want to live all the time. I want to live like Paul is. I want to, I want to be like Paul in this. I want, I want him to be my all in all. And my prayer is you want him to be your all in all too. That it's all about Christ. It's about Christ alone in everything. Whether we live or whether we die. Whether in the presence of Christ or whether preaching Christ. It's about Christ. I want to live there. 
I want to find my joy in him. And if you're in Christ this morning, oh, I pray that's your greatest desire as well. Let's now examine the rest of this passage here. I mean, it's like, a, like we're just starting off. I mean, I've already got to 30,000 feet. And it's only going to get better. So hold on. Put on your Austin mask. We're going to look here. We're going to discover how Paul can... can, can or we want to join Paul in this in, in, in saying, for to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Or, or another way to say it, to make life about Christ alone. In order to do this, help, help us do that. I'm going to give us four words. Four words to help us kind of hang our hat on to work through this passage that will help us understand how to make Christ um, and how to make our life about Christ alone. The first word is deliverance. Deliverance. Look at verse 19 with me. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Now notice that first word there in verse 19, 4. All right, he, he's basically saying, he, he's pointing back and said, this is what enables me to rejoice and choose an attitude of joy, leading him to be able to say, for me to live as Christ and die as gain. This is what, what enables me to do this. For, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you the reason that I can do this. I want to know, don't you? I, I want to know how he can do that. I want to know how he can say that and live in that to make Christ and Christ alone everything. So he's going to tell us here. Well, look here, it says, for I know, and this is, he has a certainty that something's going to happen. So what is he certain about? Notice what it says, that this will turn out for my deliverance. He knows for certain that a a deliverance will take place for him. He will be delivered. He knows that. Well, deliverance from what? Now, Now, we know he's in prison, so you may immediately assume that he's speaking about being delivered from prison. Maybe. Hold on. Maybe it's more than that. And I think it is, and I think you'll see the te- text bears that. There's two things that help us understand what deliverance he is speaking of here. First, understanding this phrase here, will turn out for my deliverance, is a direct qu- quote from Job 13.16 from the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's a direct quote, quote from there. This will turn out for my deliverance. Some of your Bibles may say salvation. It's the same word, context dictates its meaning. Deliverance, salvation, to be saved, to be delivered, means the same thing. And, and, and the, the context of the phrase in Job um, is that Job, right after this, he says, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. It's a famous verse from Job. Job's got all these things going wrong. Everything's going. He lost his whole family. His wife's saying, curse God and die. I mean, it can't get any worse. All of his children are gone. He's lost everything. His body is broken out in sores that hurt and itch and, 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 and bleeding. His wife's not supporting him. And all of his friends are saying, oh, like Job's because you're sinful. God doesn't love you. Now, we know from the beginning of Job that's not the, that's not the case. God's doing something, ultimately to test Job and also to prove to Satan that this guy, I have his heart. And in the end, we see what happens. But the context here is that Job knew when he said this, when he said this phrase, um, that, that God would deliver him. He understood that God would deliver him. He, he understood that he would deliver him from physical troubles and from the poor counsel of his friends. He, he understood that. But he didn't know at that point whether it would be in this life or the next that he would deliver him. You see that? He didn't know at this point. He's completely clueless. We know because we read it. Read the whole book and we know the end of the story. But he doesn't. So he, he says, I know this will turn out for my deliverance, but he doesn't know when. Second thing that helps us understand the deliverance Paul is speaking of in our, is the context of our passage this morning. 
Because Paul is in prison, it would be easy for us to say, well, this is a deliverance is a physical one. But the context of the passage and the book of Philippians does not allow us to say that. That that's the only thing he might be speaking of. Paul doesn't know at this point whether Caesar will take his life or release him. He does not know that. In verse 20, later on we're going to see, it says, Paul says, whether, life or, whether by life or death. He, he doesn't know. Uh, we see in verse 23 through 24 that Paul struggles with what would be best, life or death. He's struggling. And then in, in, in chapter 2, verse 17, Paul speaks about being poured out as a drink offering for the, the church at Philippi. And the other time he uses that phrase in 2 Timothy, the last letter he writes to Timothy, and he's speaking about, I'm, I'm going to die. And I believe he's speaking about, that he doesn't know for sure, even in, in chapter 2 of Philippians, whether he's going to live or die, whether he'll be released or not. He's in prison. He doesn't know for sure. But he does know this for sure. Just like Job, he will be delivered. Whether in life or whether in death, he will be delivered. He knows that. Another way to look at this word deliverance is the word vindication or acquittal or exoneration. Not guilty. See, Paul knows that one way or the other he would be vindicated by Christ no matter what Caesar does or doesn't do. He's not trusting in Caesar. See, he's trusting in Christ. Christ would vindicate him as not being guilty of the reason he's in prison right now. And he also, listen to this, he, he would vindicate him of not being guilty, listen, of sin. Where did I get that? That Christ would vindicate him. That he'd declare him not guilty. Well, we know because Paul writes this other letter called Romans, and look what he says. After this whole thing in 5 through 7, we're justified by faith. We're made right with God by faith through Christ. What he says in Romans 8, 1. Oops. Well, let me tell you what. Well, I'm going to wait. Here's what Romans 8, 1 says. For there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. He knows this. And he knows that he will be delivered ultimately by Christ. And he will not be guilty of sin. You see, for Paul it came down to Christ. Christ would vindicate him, not Caesar. That's the point here. He knows that. So he can say, this will turn out for my deliverance. I know. I'll be vindicated. Why? This is a subject of what he's talking about. It's all about Christ. It's all about Christ. Well, notice the two things that Paul says enable him uh, to, to know that he will be delivered in our passage here. First, he says there in, in verse 19, through your prayers. Paul has confidence in his deliverance, his vindication, because, Paul, because the people are praying. He says, through your prayers. I know that I'll be delivered. I know I'll be vindicated because of Christ. Why? Because of your prayers. Paul shows his continual dependence on prayer in all things many times in his, in his letters. But listen to what he writes to the church at Ephesus, showing his continual dependence on prayer. And, I pr- and pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth that, to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. So he's asking, pray for me. I need your prayers. I'm counting on your prayers. I'm, I'm banking on your prayers to help me do what God has called me to do, which is to proclaim the gospel everywhere. He's leaning on their prayers. The Lord uses the prayers of his people to bring about his plan. He does. He uses the prayers of his people to bring about his plan. And I know that makes some of you all uncomfortable. Uh, how about this? This will make you really uncomfortable, Boss Spurgeon. Prayer is the rope that rings the bell in the belfry of God. Prayer is the rope that rings the belfry in the, bel- in, in the bell in the belfry of God. 
Why does it make us uncomfortable? Oh, the sovereignty of God. He'll bring about whatever he wants. You know, he will, but he uses the prayers of his people. And he will not do something apart from the prayers of his people. Either be your prayers or my prayers. Somebody's prayers will be involved in that. And I'm not saying he's at our mercy. He's just going to use prayers. And if God is going to do something great, it won't happen apart from the prayers of his people. Again, not depending on the prayers that he can't do something, but he will use the prayers of people. That's what he does all through the scripture. You're saying, well, hold on, hold on. I'm just telling you what the scripture says. And it may make you uncomfortable. God's sovereign. He'll do whatever he wants. You know, he will. But he always uses the means to his ends. Always. He doesn't bypass his people. He uses people. And here he uses prayer. And Paul, Paul's saying this. Paul, the king of predestination and sovereignty, says this. I'm banking on your prayers. That's what he says. I'm going to go with Paul. I hope you will too. Will you commit to pray for a mighty work of God here at Grace and around the world? I want us to be committing to pray for God to do a great work in our hearts and the people in our community and the people around the world because God uses the prayers of his people to accomplish his ends, which we know from Revelation that there will be a people who will stand before him one day in all eternity singing praises to him from every people, tribe, tongue, and nation of the world. And I don't want to miss that. He's going to bring it about, but I want to make sure I'm seeing it. And the way we get to see it, the way we get to participate in it, we pray, we cry out to God as if it depends on our prayer, knowing that it depends on him. Secondly, the thing that Paul says enable him to know that he will be delivered is provision or supply. Some translation, if you look there at your Bibles in verse 19, the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Some Bibles say supply or the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. See, the Holy Spirit in Paul reminds him that Christ has promised to deliver him, deliver him one way or the other. Right? He, 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 he knows that, that, that Christ will deliver him. He knows this truth because he knows God's truth. All right, and I'll bring back Romans 8.1 right here because this is where it is in my church. I got a little head there. That's all right. This is a great verse for everything, let me tell you. All right. Therefore, is there not, no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus? He knows. He knows this truth. He writes it to the church of Rome. He, he's able to say this because the spirit of Jesus Christ in him, which is the spirit of, help me, truth. Truth. The Spirit brings truth to his mind. And the Spirit will bring truth to our mind to remind us of the promises of God. To remind us that one day we will be vindicated. That we will be delivered, whether by life or death, we will be delivered. He'll bring it to our hearts so that we might know that there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, no matter what people say to you. You will be delivered. Paul lets us know that, that it's prayer and the provision of the Holy Spirit that enabled him to know that he will be delivered and therefore be able to rejoice because they point him back to this. Christ alone. That's the answer, isn't it? It's the answer to all the equations. Christ alone. They point him back to Christ. Christ will vindicate him through the prayers of the people and the provision of the Holy Spirit. That's how he knows. That's what gives him confidence. That's why he's able to say, and in this, I rejoice. Well, let's look at the second word that will help us understand how to make our life about Christ alone. The second word is expectation. Look at verse 20 with me. According to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame or in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now as always be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. So he, he, here is, we, we, we see Paul's expectation. So what's at the heart of his expectation? What's he expecting? Well, what's his expectation? What's in his sense? What's his desire? 
What does he hope that will happen and, and desires? He states it both negatively and positively in this verse. First, he states it negatively. Not to be put to shame in anything. No matter what happens in Paul's life, he wants to make sure he doesn't bring shame on the name of Christ. I mean, he, he's not in a good circumstance right now. There's probably people who aren't treating him very good. Caesar's not treating him very good. Not thinking of him very well. Other people aren't either. So how will we respond to that? He's praying, I, I, want, I, I don't want to shame Christ in this situation. In any situation, I don't want to bring shame on the name of Christ. So it's a negative way to put it. He states it positively in the second half of the verse. But with all boldness, Christ even now is always be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. See, there's a contrast to, to, with shame here. Not only he doesn't want to bring shame to Christ, he wants to exalt Christ. He wants Christ to be exalted. exalted. Notice he, what he says and how he says um, that he wants Christ to be exalted. He says, to be exalted in my body. Is Christ exalted in your body? Is he exalted in your body? How about here? Is he exalted while we're, while we're here in this life? Is he exalted in your body? How you take care of your body? Is he exalted in that? Is he exalted in how you use your body to the glory of God? How you use your hands and your feet and your brain and your thoughts? Is he exalted in those, in those things? Well, Paul spoke about this kind of exaltation in the body in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. To present our bodies. It's all yours. My, my entire life, my entire body, Lord, my entire existence here is yours. I'm lifting it up for a, a, a spiritual service of worship so that you might use me for holy purposes. That's how we exalt Christ in our body. And Paul's desire that not only he would not bring shame to Christ, but he would exalt Christ in his body. But he also exalt Christ in his body in his death too. Not only living, but also dying. By being faithful to the end, Lord, I want to be exalted. I want to exalt you in my body. So you could sum up, I would say, Paul's expectation here by saying, no shame for Christ. Only fame for Christ. That was Paul's heart. No shame for Christ. Only fame for Christ. That he might be exalted. Is your ex expectation that Christ would be exalted in your body? Whether by life or by death? Is that your expectation? It won't be by accident. It, it won't just happen. It will be intentional. And notice that Paul uses this word with boldness or with courage. And last time I checked, boldness and courage take some intentionality. You have to choose to be bold. You have to step out and be bold. You have to step out and be courageous. It doesn't just happen. And Paul's saying, you've got to be intentional. Are we intentional about Christ being exalted in our body? So what's this look like? What does it look like that Christ would be exalted in our body? Well, we look at Romans 12.1. How about this? 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whether then you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Whatever you do kind of sums it all up, doesn't it? So I didn't want to give you a list of 10 things because I wouldn't even get them all. I wouldn't come close to it because it goes on and on and on and on. That we would be exalted. He would be glorified in whatever we do. That exalts Christ in our body. I pray that our expectation would be that of Paul, that Christ would be exalted in our body, whether by life or by death. Well, just to remind us 
again, look back again with verse 21. We kind of start with that. But he says, for, to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That, that this is a summary of verses 19 and 20, as we can see. To live and get to preach Christ. To, to, to die. I'm in the presence of Christ. Christ alone. It's about Christ alone. That's why he can have joy in the midst of these circumstances. Through prayer, through the provision of the saints, and through his expectation that Christ would use him to exalt him in all things. Well, the third word that will help us understand how to make our life about Christ alone is dilemma. Look at verses 22 through 24 again. But if I'm to live on the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. But I, I don't know which to choose. I'm hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that's very much better. Yet, to remain on the flesh is more necessary for your sake. He has a dilemma here. This is this choice between two good things. Which way do I go? I don't know what to choose, he says. To stay or to leave, to remain or go. Notice the words he uses to describe this dilemma. I'm hard-pressed from both directions. It's the idea of walking down a narrow canyon with, with, with canyon walls that just keep going and going and going. And, and it's hard press. It's pressing in on him. You see some of these in old Indiana Jones movies, right? These canyons, and they keep getting narrow and narrow, and they begin to squeeze through these things. And that's the, that's the picture here he wants us to have. It's, a, it's just squeezing in on this. It's, I don't know which way to go. That's, that's the pressure that he feels here. And notice that he also says, do not know. I don't know. God had not revealed to him yet what it would be. He didn't know. He, he was hard-pressed. It says in, in verse 22, but, but if I'm to live on, in the ver- uh, on on one hand, so we can just put it this way, in one hand over here, he says, but I'm to live on the flesh, that will mean fruitful labor for me. And I don't know what you choose. He says, he, staying here on earth will mean continual spread of the gospel. Then look at verse 24, because that goes with this hand over here. He says, yet to remain on the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Paul knows that the Lord could use him to encourage and help the church of Philippi. So he could keep preaching. He could help the church of Philippi over on this hand. But, but on the other hand, he says this, verse 23, having the desire to part and be the Christ for that is very much better. I mean, what can be better than the very, very presence of the unveiled glory of Christ? What can be better? But, but, but he said they're both good, and, and I don't know what this choose. He's this dilemma in a sense. But listen, in the dilemma, he's content with whatever the Lord has for him. Because either way, it's about the exaltation of Christ. Christ can be exalted here, and Christ can be exalted here. Either hand, either way, that Christ could be exalted. It's a win-win situation. When I played football, I played outside linebacker. I mean, you all know that. And, and, and an outside linebacker does a lot of things. And sometimes he rushes the quarterback. And that was my favorite thing to do, to go hit the guy in the ribs. All right? just love your pastor, such a kind guy, right? That was what I like to do is go hit the quarterback. It was a fun, exhilarating thing. But also sometimes I was to put, drop and pass coverage over here, things in the flat, depending on what part, maybe guys over the middle or whatever, and cover a guy going out for a pass. And the interception's pretty, pretty fun as well, all right? Either one of those things. But we would, early on in my football career, especially in college, I would get in what's called no man's land, all right? Either rush or drop. Don't just stand there. That's what they'd say. So they'd show film. All right, and the good thing about football is they film everything, and the eye in the sky never lies. So you can go back, hey, man, I had a great game. Then you go watch a film. Oh, I didn't play so well because you see the film. But you get no man's land. The coach say, hey, you're in McKenzie, you're in no man's land again. Either drop or rush. Even if you miss the call, do something. Either one of them is right. It's a win-win situation, Brian. Go, drop or go. Either one, you win. And in a greater degree, much greater degree, it's a win-win situation. Whether he stays or whether he goes, he wins. 
And whether we stay or whether we go, and whatever we do, if we glorify Christ and He is exalted, we win. But we can't just stand. We've got to go one way or the other. So for Paul, the dilemma was solved. He wins. Why? Because for Paul, life was about, help me here, Christ alone. How about you? Is life about Christ alone? We now consider the first three words that have helped us understand how to make life about Christ alone. Deliverance, expectation, dilemma. Now look at the fourth word that will help us understand how we can make life about Christ alone. Conviction. Verse 25. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Because of the blessing that Paul could be the church of Philippi, Paul had a conviction. You see this word in convinced that he will remain alive for now. Now, now this, the word this, convinced of this, if you look back to verse 24, again he says, yet to remain on the flesh is more necessary for your sake. He, he had such a heart for the people to help them that he was convinced. Now, now listen, he doesn't know for sure yet because later on, right, in verse chapter 2, he's still saying, I'm pouring out a drink on it. I'm not sure. He's still not sure. He's just convinced the best thing for him to do would be to stay. I don't think the Lord, there's debate here, and I really don't think the context of all Philippians says that he knew he was going to stay. I mean, right before that, he's, I don't know. And he doesn't. In chapter 2, he doesn't know. So he's just saying he's so convinced and convicted that the best thing is to remain for their benefit. Oh, Paul is living out what we're going to see here in the next few weeks in my favorite favorite. Yeah, it's one of my favorite for all, of all time. You all know it because I say it about every other sermon. Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but humility of mind. Regard one another as more important yourself. The Philippians. That's what he was doing. Do not look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. Paul is living this out. I'm so convicted and convinced that this is the thing that would be best Oh, both of them would be good, but right now I'm thinking maybe I should stay here to help them. That's, that's his idea. He's convicted of that. And we'll see more of that in chapter 2. But when we look at chapter 2, the reason that he, he's, he, he exhorts the people to live this way, the reason he wants to live this way for, this, for the betterment of others is because this was the attitude of Christ. He says, have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. That's chapter 2 as well. That's why he was convicted and convinced of this. That, oh, it would be good for me to go here, but it could be good for me to go here. And I'm thinking maybe, I should, maybe I'm going to stay here because it would be better for them. Not for me. He's not thinking about himself. You don't see that with Paul here. I'd be like, hey, help me. Go. I want to go there. Be honest with you. But Paul, no, he doesn't. He says, I want to remain here. He's convicted and convinced of this. And notice what he says remaining would do for them. It says, I love this phrase. Look there in verse 25. It would result in your progress and joy in the faith. And man, this question came to me, and I'm not sure if I liked it. But I'll go ahead and ask the question. Are you living for others' progress and joy in the faith? Are you living for others' others' progress and joy in the faith? Are you part of the body of Christ for what you get out of it? Or for what others get out of it? Are you committed and part of GBC for what you can give or what you can get? Those are tough questions, aren't they? Is it about others and their joy and progress in the faith? Or is it about your joy and progress in the faith? When you're looking for a church, Paul would say, it's about others. It's about what you can give, not about what you can get. He was living for others' progress and joy in the faith. And we too are called to this high calling to live for others' progress and joy in the faith. Now look at verse 26. 
what Paul hopes will come and believes will come in him living for others' progress and joy in the faith. And verse 26 says, So that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. The ESV says it this way, So that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of coming to you again. Paul's ministry then would bring about glory for Christ Jesus. If he is about their progress and joy of the faith, who gets glorified? Not Paul. Jesus gets glorified. Christ is exalted. That's what he, what he wants to happen from this. It was all about Christ for Paul. It was about Christ alone. So are we living for others' progress and joy in the faith so Christ might be exalted? Because you can also do that so you might be exalted. Hey, look at me, man. I'm really serving people. Did you see what I did yesterday? I mean, I was, I mean, I was over so-and-so's house and I was helping them clean up. Did you see that? Mm-mm. If we're really living for the progress and joy for them, for what they get out of it, Christ will be exalted. We won't be telling everybody. It's about Christ alone. Not Christ and you. Christ alone. Christ alone. Lord, help us make it about Christ alone. Well, Paul's secret here to joy is about making life about what? Help me. Christ alone. Christ alone. Remember, the answer is Christ alone. Oh, that we would choose joy by making life about Christ alone. In life, Christ. In death, Christ. In pain, Christ. In success, Christ. In failure, in Christ. In circumstances, in Christ. In disappointment, in Christ. In the praise of a job well done, Christ. In criticism, Christ. Christ. Why is Christ all there is? Because he is life. In him we have life. Do you know Christ this morning? Is he your life? Have you trusted in what he's done for you on the cross? If not, I pray that you would turn from trusting yourself and turn from his provision for you on the cross to save you from the the penalty and power, ultimately the presence of sin, to be made right with God. Cry out to God. Just just cry. You don't have to. I'm not saying all these prayers are wrong and what they say. Just say this, Lord, save me. You think you'll hear that? You bet he will. Lord, save me. Save me. Cry out to him. And those who know him, who have been saved by him, I want you to cry out to God. Lord, make it about Christ alone in my life. Make it about Christ alone. Christ alone. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for Christ. Lord, when we make it about him in all things, and Lord, in that we find our greatest joy, we can rejoice because it's about Christ. It's about his exaltation. And Lord, you'll do it somewhere mysteriously, miraculously through the prayers and the provision of the Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray we be about that so we can see Christ alone and exalt him and be joyful in the midst of all things because it's about your son. Lord, help us now as we lift our voices to you and we, we sing about Christ alone. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.